You're listening to The Kin Podcast, episode 27. Thanks so much for being here. Today's a very special episode with Ashley Abramson, a writer who writes for publications like The New York Times, The Cut, Britain Co., Long Reads, and more. She's a total writing badass. But not only because she writes for amazing publications, but because what she writes about is so incredibly brave. I think you'll really enjoy this interview because not only will we talk about Ashley's writing career and how she balances motherhood as a stay-at-home mom and being a writer for all these, you know, renowned publications, but we talk about how she manages turning her most personal pain and personal stories into something that's helpful for other people, helpful for the people who read her articles all over the interwebs. And I'm really curious about, as a writer, how does she put up with failure? Failure is such a hot topic, you know, in our society. We're so, so conditioned to run away from it. But Ashley kind of leans into it. The perseverance she has is crazy. And the bravery, it's amazing. Like, I think she belongs in Gryffindor, no doubt. So without further ado... I hope you'll enjoy this episode with Ashley Abramson, where we talk about writing, motherhood, mental health, trauma, and serving. This is a good one. What do you say? Let's do this. You're listening to The Kin Show, where we explore the intricacies of the human heart, faith, relationships, spirituality, parenthood, and more, celebrating our journeys as seekers. We believe in love in giving more of it to every person we interact with and to ourselves. We believe in living with intention for our children, for our communities, and most importantly, for ourselves. We believe we are all one family, one kin, kindred spirits loved unconditionally by God. And we believe it's more important to actually know God than to just know about God. Seeker, writer, photographer, your host, Marcella Chamorro, shares perhaps way too many personal stories and asks you the right questions to help you uncover what's best for your life. This is not our practice life, so let's make the most of it. Are you ready to hear inspiring interviews and coffee table chats with Marcella? Grab a cup of coffee and prepare to transform your definition of your dream life. Here's your host, boy band lover and master of deep conversations, Marcella Chamorro. Welcome to the Kin Podcast, Ashley. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm so grateful for your time here with us. I mean, I read your writing for publications like the New York Times and other high-profile places these days. Oh, thanks. um, I'm always like kind of amazed by your Contently profile, which has all of the links to all of your writing all over the interwebs. My like, wow, like I wish it had oh, dates I on it because I'm like, read that. I do. <laughs> I love content. I updated and... faithfully, thinking maybe there's someone out there that looks at it. So That's that me. means a lot. <laughs> That's me. When it, when it's somebody that I resonate with their writing, uh, sometimes it's hard to. I know people feel kind of uncomfortable sometimes being like, and here I am, and here I am, like on Instagram or something like that. Like, here I wrote this, and I wrote this, and I wrote this. And it feels like you're putting stuff out all the time. And so I check your content lead to make sure I'm not missing anything. Yeah, you know, I kind of stopped. I don't put everything on social media that I publish because I do a lot of, honestly, stuff that's not that glamorous or exciting. So my content lead profile is just the ones that I'm like, I'm proud of this. I, 
I want someone to come across this. It feels like it's constantly being updated. I mean, there's always new stuff. And so I'm sure that it seems obviously a full-time job. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you kind of got there to this point of writing badassery? Thank you. Yeah, that is a great compliment. So I am a stay-at-home mom of two little boys. Um, Oliver is five and Miles just turned two. And so I fit my freelancing, which is kind of a full-time job, into the two days that they're at daycare. So Tuesday and Thursday I work and I basically just pitch articles. I'll have ideas based on something that I experienced with my kids or, you know, something that I was inspired by that I read online that I want to, um, write about. And I'll basically just say, Hey editor, I'd really love to work with you. Here's my idea. Here are some other writing samples that are on similar topics. Do you, um, do you like this idea? And they'll either say yes or no. And, um, the articles that you see on contently are like, the 10% of editors who say yes to my ideas. So I have, you know, most writers have a pretty significant fail rate. And I would say most editors either don't reply to my ideas or say that they're not into it. So I'm pretty tenacious, which I think I tell everybody that freelancing isn't a meritocracy. It's not about talent or how smart you are, or how good of a writer you are. It's about how uh, willing you are to put yourself out there even when you're continually being rejected. That seems, is that something that you were born with or is that something that you kind of built up like a muscle? So funny question. I was just telling one of my friends who wants to uh, quit his job and freelance, write That, um, I am really lucky because I am an Enneagram seven. So I kind of thrive on that, uh, opportunity searching spontaneity type thing. And I'm an ENFP on the Myers-Briggs and I'm an only child. So I kind of have a triad of like, Hey, I'm really special. Like (laughs) I want to be in the center of attention and, you know, almost without thinking about how it's going to affect my family or how it's going to affect my heart. I just kind of go for stuff. Um, that's just kind of how I'm wired. And last year, uh, 2018, I just, I started getting some momentum, um, writing about, um, my anxiety and motherhood and things like that. And I just kind of kept running with it. Like, Oh, you know, Washington post wanted this. Maybe I can try the New York times or this other big publication. And I never really stopped to think like, Hey, let's slow down and process some of this stuff. Maybe let's go to therapy and work through it before we start throwing our, you know, our emotions out there for everybody to read. Um, and I kind of hit a point where I had to reevaluate, like, what do I want to be writing? Like what's healthy for me? What's healthy for my family? And then, uh, sort of started fresh at the beginning of 2019 with a, with a new vision and a new outlook on the way that I want to do things. Well, I'm actually very curious about that because you do, publish very personal stories. Um, they're enlightening, raw, and really powerful. Did you ever, before going through your, you know, deciding on your 2019 new vision, did you ever personally worry about opening up or was that experience like what that might be for the people in your stories? Just because I ask that I have the experience that every time I put something out there that makes me nervous is when it gets Mm -hmm. the most, uh, it resonates the most with people. 
Like I yeah, published a, pop- a podcast a episode question. about like post weaning depression and people were like, mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> and, oh, that's um, real. I experienced that too. And nobody talks about it. So I'm going to have to listen to that one. Yeah. And uh, I, I feel like when I put something out that's safer, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's not crickets, but it's not the same, uh, amount it isn't of... the same. And I think like I told you about my personality type and I mm-hmm. think I, it's easy for me to get addicted to that sort of attention. I, I, even though I'm a seven on the Enneagram, I think I have a little bit of like four wing three or maybe three wing four where I have this thing where I'm like, I'm so special. Like I'm so unique and different. People need to hear my words, but like if one person rejects me, it's like, I'm a failure. I'm not good enough. I shouldn't be writing. Um, so I'm really motivated by that, like drive to connect with people and to, you know, continually put stuff out there. Um, but like I said, I never really slowed down to think, um, how my perceived success could, um, impact my family or impact me. Now you asked about, um, you know, being careful about sharing some of those, you know, cause I basically, I write about trauma a lot, my own trauma. Um, but I write about my mom and my mom, um, passed away in 2009. So I don't have to worry about her, you know, coming across my story for me writing about that experience is, has been both really hard and really healing. Cause I can see it with a new lens. Um, but at the same time, it's easier for me to write about my own personal experiences, right? Because nobody can tell me that I'm wrong. Like nobody can read my story about my trauma and say, you're not smart enough or, you know, your opinion is wrong because it's my unique experience. And so I think actually for me, writing those more personal stories was actually safer for me. Um, because it was almost like people were validating my pain or validating my trauma. Um, And so now this year I'm focusing more on like writing, uh, reported, like researched articles. And that feels more risky for me, even emotionally, because if you write an op-ed for the New York times, there's going to be trolls coming out saying like, you're not woke or like this reeks of privilege or you didn't research it well enough. And to me, that feels way scarier than putting something out there. That's really emotional. Does that make sense? It does. And it it is interesting to me how you say like, it requires to be, you know, you to be tenacious and keep going and at the same time be afraid of failure, which I think we all are. How do you, how do you keep going when those things happen and when those fears come up? I think, or the rejections, because like you said, it happens. Well, the one thing I've learned in my freelance uh, career is that I, you know, I know I said rejection earlier on because when you get a no from an editor, it technically is a rejection, right? But knowing that there's like a myriad of reasons why they're saying no, maybe it's just not the right time for that publication. Maybe the editor doesn't have a budget for it at the moment. Maybe they're publishing something really similar next week and it's just, you know, not going to work. So knowing that a no from an editor is not a no to my story or a no to my level of talent or idea, um, has been really helpful because it's 99% of the time, it's probably not even about me or what I wrote. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like I probably couldn't get there to that point without lots of therapy because it's, especially oh, when I you're have writing. a great therapist, shout out to Amanda. Aren't they the best? <laughs> oh the yeah. Best. I just found, I have been going to therapy for years and years. I think everyone should, regardless of their, you know, anxiety levels or mental health. It's a really good idea to go to therapy, but I just found a therapist that I'm like, I never knew that I could connect this much with someone like 
I've had good therapists in the past that, oh yeah, this is helpful, but I just am so excited to go to therapy now that I found the right one. Yeah, I totally feel you. I started 2019 saying, I'm going to go to therapy weekly because first of all, I live in Nicaragua and things tend to be very cheap here. Um, oh, and so even mental health and healthcare. even mental health. And so I was like, you not know electricity what? though, right? Not electricity. <laughs> I am, I'm not sweating right now because I just showered, but give me an hour and I'll start sweating. Uh, yeah. Um, so I decided, you know, I'm not going to pay for a gym. I'm gonna, instead, I want to invest in therapy. And so I started going weekly until my therapist was like, Marcela, you really need to start coming like at least every two weeks. Cause we don't have that much to talk about right now. <laughs> yeah um for at least like three months I was going weekly and it was so exciting to go every time because you know depending on I really don't believe you need to go to therapy when you're in a crisis prevent you know there's so many Mm -hmm. and there's and there's so many things that can always be worked on and discovered totally so yeah really fun experience for me and my marriage is so much better today building an emotional immune system right when we go to therapy we can gain the tools that we need when the hard things do come up yeah you know it's very interesting to me that you know when I'm reading your work on the interwebs. I never would have imagined that you're an Enneagram 7. So by the time I I publish this interview with you, I will already have published my interview with um, just my Enneatype, which is an Instagram account all about the Enneagram, which is like a personality framework, not a test. But um, So you say that you're a type 7, and I never would have guessed that from your writing. I mean, obviously. Because it's deep? Because it's... (laughs) You know, I tend to think about Enneagram type sevens as like, okay, you have a five-year-old. You might understand the song. Yes. Everything is awesome. <laughs> like, Oh, the- we cannot get enough of that, that soundtrack. Yes, seriously. And by we can't get enough, I mean I've had enough. <laughs> I have it playing in my head because we just traveled. So my almost five-year-old, he's going to be five in like two months, um, watches the movie, all, the Lego movie all the time. And so I figure that Enneagram sevens are like that song. And mm-hmm. so it just goes to show how multifaceted every single type really is, right? Like Enneagram is yeah. just one. It doesn't get everything. No, and it, you know, there are, I, for a long time, I resisted that I was a seven. I, I, I thought I was a four for a long time because I, like I said, I, the fours are kind of like, I'm special, but I'm not special. Um, and you know, really melancholy and deep and nostalgic and things like that. And I definitely embody all of that. The thing that made me realize I'm a seven is, you know, how every number goes to another number in health and another number in disarray. Mm Mm-hmm. So when I am stressed, I become a one and that's a seven. So when I'm stressed, I'm like really black and white perfectionist. Everything has to be perfect, kind of demanding. Um, that's who I am when I'm stressed. And then when I'm healthy, I become a five. Like I can see things more logically. Um, and my husband's, I think a five. So that's a really interesting dynamic. (laughs) But Yeah. yeah, I don't, I think as far as the seven goes, like I don't really identify with the like I'm not, if you meet me in real life, like I'm not bubbly. I'm not like super, I mean, I'm witty and I like, like to have a good time, but I'm not like super, you know, let's go mountain climbing and let's go on this vacation and let's do this and this and this. For me, the seven comes through more in like, I crave opportunities. It's hard for me to be present and content in what I have. Like, 
even yesterday I submitted an article um, to the New York Times and she replied and said, no, thanks. And I'm like, oh, okay, now I have to like email the Washington, Washington Post and the Atlantic and this and this and this, because I just can't like sit and enjoy what I have. I want like the next fun experience. And for me, I think that's like a distract, like distracting from my anxiety, right? I want to compensate for the areas where I maybe don't feel good enough or smart enough or funny enough or whatever else. I mean, props to you for throwing names like that around, like, oh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the Atlantic. I mean, there's a lot of freelance writers who might be listening and thinking that is that is commendable to kind of approach a no thanks to say, oh, it's cool, let's do the next thing. Um, but isn't it funny how, like, I was just telling my friend yesterday, like, I feel like such an imposter. Like, maybe I've written one time for the New York Times, but, like, I got lucky and the article didn't you know, it wasn't really popular. It didn't get shared that much. And, um, it's never enough. Like it feels like chasing the wind sometimes like, all right, I got this article on the New York times parenting page. Now I need to write an op-ed that goes viral, like to prove something. And it's just, it's never enough. Like there's always more to be had and there's always more prestige to seek and more money to make. And I am the type of personality where if I don't slow down and pause to like examine my heart, I will, destroy myself running after that stuff. You know, sometimes that happens to me when something really good happens. Like mm -hmm. I, I practice centering prayer. I don't know if you've ever mm -hmm. heard of it. Yeah. So yeah. When I, and you're not supposed to judge your prayer. <laughs> It's But like mindfulness, right? It is. Um, but like with the Holy spirit. So yeah, kind of. I love the Holy spirit. <laughs> so, um, when I once had like this amazing prayer session where I sat down for 20 minutes and it felt like a second, the next day mm -hmm. I was like, this stinks, you know, because mm -hmm. it, it's, it's hard to match the highs. Um, and that is the opposite of what you're supposed to do with centering prayer, but that is the human condition, right? Um, so centering prayer is something that I do, right? For it's mm -hmm. my practice. It sounds like writing is kind of like your practice. Um, would that be right? Yeah. I mean, <sighs> Writing is such an interesting thing for me because I think writing could be a really healing and centering and balancing tool to, you know, writing, I believe can show me what God is doing in my life and writing can show me areas that I've grown and healed. And it can be a really beautiful healing practice, but there's also this part of me that can exploit that, right? Like I'm good at this and I know that I'm good at it and I know how to email editors and get myself out there. And so I can sort of use it as a way to like make myself feel better about areas of my life that suck, <laughs> you know, like yeah. any area of our life can do that, right? Some people have that with, with their career. Some people have that with fitness and, you know, body image for me, it's like, if I feel Like I'm struggling in any area of my life, at least I have writing. Like if my kids are making me feel like a bad mom, I'll go pitch an article and try to make myself feel better. It is addicting. And so I just think for me, like I try to be really careful and slow down and pause and actually ask God, like, what do you want me to do here? Like, what's going to benefit me most? Like my soul, what's going to bless my family the most? What's going to bless my readers the most? And then before just jumping into it, because it feels good, like really trying to center myself first. When you do feel centered, um, in your writing, what, thank you. Yeah. I, I I've really grown, I think in the past few years, um, in this, it's been, 
it's taken a lot of inner work. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think everything does, right? Anything good, anything good and worthwhile does. I mean, I remember I, I used to be really into like metrics and Mm -hmm. numbers on things. And, you know, I, I spent a long time, I actually had to kind of go cold Turkey on my, uh, achievements, kind of like hedonic treadmill of like never, mm-hmm. and never being enough and, and always wanting to like prove myself and all this stuff. And when my first child was five months old, I decided to go cold Turkey. And I know that that's a huge privilege to be able to do that. Um, I spent a year just dedicated to him while my husband's salary was enough for us. That's a huge mm-hmm. privilege. And I'm very grateful for that experience because I was able through a lot of prayer a lot of self-work to be able to kind of ex- extract achievement from my self-worth. And, and I think motherhood had a lot to do with it because it kind of felt like for the first time I understood how much God loves me. Like if I love this tiny human this much, and I'm a human, right? can only imagine how much God loves me. And that just totally. kind of blew my mind. So, but now with this podcast and stuff that I've been doing, I, the numbers of that matter the most to me are the messages that I get back. And it's like, oh, Marcela, this episode and this made me cry and this really changed how I thought about this. That for me is the only number that matters. You know, how many people Mm. are feeling changed in some kind of hopefully positive way. Yeah, it's Um, a whole different kind of metric. It's a whole different kind of metric. And now I just pray to God. I'm always like, this is yours. This is yours. Do with it what you will. And I just hope I'm doing no harm. Um... And that it will do whatever it is that you want it to do. But it took me a long time, a lot of work to get there. So I feel you. You're not alone in that at all. When When you feel the most centered in your writing, what is it that you hope that your writing does for others? I think my message, my core message and what I want to communicate is always hope. Um, you know, that's really tangible and easy when I'm telling stories of my childhood that was full of trauma and how I sort of overcame it and became more resilient. Um, and that's why I think I like to write about those things because it just felt like such a hopeful and inspiring message. Um, because it's like a testimony, right? It's here's how I suffered and here's what God did. And here's why I am today. Um, and I'm still kind of figuring out how to do that with, more of the research reporting writing. I think writing on mental health and mental health resources that are available for moms is a really cool way to do that. And I've kind of been focused on that right now. And that's a really weighty topic for the interwebs where people are so eager to tear down, right? Oh Um, yeah. That's why I'm so scared to write (laughs) op-eds. No, I feel you. I feel you. But mental health seems to be like the one thing that is so when I started, I don't know if you, you went through the same thing or something similar, but when I started writing on the internet, like back in 2010, and I'm technically not writing currently, I'm podcasting, but um, mm-hmm. when I started writing, I, I wrote about like social media and marketing. That's how I got in. Then I started oh. uh, writing about like fitness and then personal development. And like, so mm-hmm. the themes started developing with me. Um, then it was entrepreneurship because then I started doing really well in the entrepreneurship world and it did the money and the this and the that mm-hmm. and whatever. Um, and then it kind of changed. And then, like I told you through motherhood, it kind of changed to spirituality and kind of a softer kind of topic that in the beginning, I never would have thought I would have had the guts to talk about God on the internet. 
Um, Isn't so that funny? It's how he challenges us. It's amazing. I even two years ago, I wouldn't have had the guts to do this. So for me, that the themes of my writing, I've increasingly become braver, more and more brave, and to be able to talk about what I really want to talk about. Um, for you, it feels like that's mental health. Is that something, yeah. if you could pick anything you would write for the biggest publication in the world, what would it be? Mental health? Yeah, I think, so the article that I'm trying to place right now, I feel like kind of encapsulates what I want to write about. So I wrote this op-ed about how, um, you know, I was really frustrated that so many people see motherhood as like this, you have to sacrifice yourself. Like you can't grow. You have to give up all your dreams because for me, motherhood has been like the most profound path to healing and growth that I've ever experienced. Not because I just love being a mom and because it's super easy because it's not, but you know, from those challenges of, you know, renegotiating your identity and learning how to manage your time and how to fit everything in and what to give up. And that has stretched me. Um, so I haven't felt like motherhood has shrunk me, but I feel like it's stretched me. Um, but I also recognize that that's such a privilege, right? Like I have childcare for my kids. I have a supportive, um, husband. I have a, you know, community of friends around me and not everyone has that. And so for me, um, writing about, um, yes, motherhood can be this awesome, profound, you know, psychologically stretching thing. But if you don't have resources, like, where does that leave you? Um, so I wrote a little bit about like how society can nurture mothers so that mothers can nurture society. Um, and to me, that feels like a core message, like motherhood could be so healing for moms, but only as much as society invests in moms, you know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it also touches upon a whole, you know, the women's movement and all totally. these other things that are so, I understand that the, how you mentioned that you were kind of afraid to write these because that is really polarizing when it seems like it's, how can it be? To support right. somebody, how can it feel polarizing to people? But it is in the world that we live in today. Totally. And I think uh, the reason it felt really timely for me was, you know, there is a conversation happening around, you know, like women's rights and families and families being separated at the border and, you know, trauma and um, even like subsidized childcare, you know, conversations happening in American politics. And so that really got me thinking, like, what is, you know, culture's role in supporting families. So that felt risky for me because I don't usually delve into politics or even anything like I don't consider myself a super political person. Of course I care about people and causes, but, um, I just, it's safer for me to not write about those things. Right. Cause with those things, people can tell you that you're wrong. Right. But if I just write about my mom's addiction and my childhood trauma, people are going to be like, Oh, that's beautiful. And that, that feels safer to me. So I've kind of had to let that go um, and start start trying things that feel a little more risky. That makes a lot of sense. And it, there's this quote that I love by Annie Dillard who's, who talks about like not yeah, hoarding. Like, do not hoard what seems good for a later place in the book or for another book. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Is that something that you practice where you just put out your best stuff and you don't save anything for later? Because sometimes it's like I have this idea, but that I'm going to do in this project or I have this amazing idea, but that I'm going to save for this other project. Or you, do you just, this is what feels really important to me right now. I'm going to do this right now and put it out. I think 
the thing about writing in at least, you know, in the digital world is that you kind of have to leverage like cultural conversations and, you know, news topics. Um, so the reason why it was so, it made so much sense in my mind to write about my mom's opioid addiction last year is because the opioid crisis was, you know, so heavy in the news. Um, so I think with my writing, I, I, of course, if there's something that feels urgent, that is disconnected totally from cultural conversations, I'll write about it. But I like to sort of align the things that I write with conversations that are happening, um, in culture. And that seems, you know, very responsible in the sense that, you know, they'll say, you know, for in, in terms of, let's say an example, social media marketing campaigns, people are like, you know, Valentine's day is coming up. It's October. You need to start planning what you're going to do for Valentine's day. Right, and, October, then it, yeah. and then it works, um, for you to put out writing or, you know, to place your writing around a topic that is timely in the moment is, is very, it seems very responsible because it works right. Um, very smart. Yeah. But I think that mm -hmm. also feeds the attention-seeking side of me, right? Because if I write this quiet, you know, um, contemplative essay that really, like, doesn't have anything to do with anything, but, you know, that probably won't get any attention. But the stuff that goes along and kind of fits in this puzzle of what's already happening in culture will get more attention. So maybe it is responsible, but there have been times where I've used that in an irresponsible way. Like, oh, people are wanting to talk about opioids and I have this trauma that I could share and maybe make some money off of it. And uh, for me, that was actually unhealthy because I didn't slow down to think about like, like how it would emotionally affect me, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. And you, you also wrote about your post-weaning depression. Um, yep. Is that something that also received attention? Because I find that most people don't want to talk about that <laughs> or read so about it I, or face it. Yeah, it's a hard one. So I wrote about that for um, Britain Co. That's a women's lifestyle website. But unfortunately, that site is no longer. They have ceased editorial operations. And so all of the pieces that I wrote for them which a lot of them, that's kind of where I found my voice in the like reported motherhood mental health space. My editor was really just trusting of me to take on topics that maybe people didn't want to talk about. And so, yeah, I don't know how much attention my pieces got, um, but it felt really good to be able to engage those types of conversations among millennial women. Um, and my editor let me keep writing on those topics. So I just kind of kept going. You, do you feel that you're writing mostly for women even these days or when you envision somebody reading your work, it's either or, or yeah, I do combination. So when of I was gender. writing for more like a personal essays, I feel like I was writing for more of a, um, inclusive audience, but I think right now, just given that I'm writing about motherhood, mental health, the way motherhood can transform us, I feel like I'm writing for either like millennial moms who are new moms and kind of don't know how to keep themselves sane. Um, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, I know perinatal mood and anxiety disorders are so important to talk about, um, but also like self-care, you know, even if you're not struggling with a, um, anxiety disorder. So yeah, I feel like either people who are wanting to become moms, but don't know how to take care of themselves or, you know, form a community around them or women that are moms and are looking for, um, some hope. Yeah. You know, it can be very frustrating as a mom 
to, you know, kind of confront somebody, you know, whether it's a doctor or a therapist and say, this is what's happening to me and to receive, um, advice that feels just textbook like, Oh, but are you Mm -hmm. working out? Yes, I am. Oh, but are Mm -hmm. you eating healthy? Yes, I am. Are you getting enough sleep? Yes, I am. I don't know why I Mm -hmm. feel this way. It is medical. It is something that is happening to me. Uh, I'm not doing anything to create this. You know, they say like, for example, with post-weaning depression, which is depression after you wean your child and stop breastfeeding, you know, oh, but did you do it slow enough? Like I dropped a feeding one a month. It took me four months to wean. Like, and then when it was completely weaned two days later it was like a drop you dropped me into the lowest darkest part of the ocean from one yeah, minute i felt like next. i couldn't get off off the couch <laughs> it was horrible yeah and so it's very frustrating when you're like i i'm you know i'm trying i'm putting i'm doing my part um yeah and i think so much i mean of women's health right now is like we have to advocate for ourselves because there are these pad answers like if you come in with chronic pain, they're like, you know, take ibuprofen or, you know, lose some weight or whatever, or go to therapy. But it's like, no, like I've tried all these things. <laughs> I'm smart <laughs> and I need you to take me seriously. And I, I hate that women have to face that. So in my writing, I, I really want to sort of demystify things that I've already experienced to make the experience a little simpler for someone else. Yeah. You know, I feel like Life is hard. Life is so hard. Um, and it's, and it's easy to write kind of a formula of like do X, Y, Z and you'll get, you know, ABC result, but that's not necessarily how it works in, in real life, you know, but coming from a place of faith, you know, you've mentioned your faith various times. How do you, do you write about your faith ever? Or is that something that you kind of leave for your personal life? No, I'm more, I'm more than willing to bring Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit into my writing. Um, but for me, you know, themes of redemption and themes of hope just sort of surface in my story without my having to even include that. I think, um, I felt, I was just telling someone this, I felt a little bit like fraught about like, where do I belong? Do I belong in the Christian writing world? Do I want to write for spiritual publications or do I want to, you know, write for some of these bigger, more secular publications? And I feel pretty strongly like I have an invitation to use my voice in, in the secular spaces. And I don't want to lose credibility by, you know, just writing about religious things because so many people just put their guard up automatically. Um, you know, it makes sense. A lot of people have really painful experiences with, with the church. And so I want to build trust and I want to build, uh, a relationship that feels safe for my readers. And I want them to know I'm a Christian for sure. But for me, the themes of redemption and hope are more, are more subtle and, um, woven into my story. Yeah. It's, it's definitely happened to me where I feel at least personally that the Holy spirit has kind of guided me to where I'm best meant to help. You know, and Mm -hmm. so I was working at a nonprofit um, as marketing director, a nonprofit that does amazing work in Nicaragua. Amazing. You know, there is education, water and sanitation, uh, economic development, like what don't they do? And it's a beautiful organization that I actually worked at for two years right out of college. So this was my, not my second time because I've done consulting for them on and off 
since then. We have a wonderful relationship, uh, the nonprofit with me. And, I, you know, I feel like they're family. So they finally convinced me to come back after doing consulting for years and do full full time, but part time, but um, kind of just commit to more than a consulting relationship. And I did that. And I'm not sure if you uh, are familiar with it, but Nicaragua kind of went through a political crisis starting in April of 2018. It actually yeah. started April 18th. My first day of work was April 16th. So that was Ooh, that's intense, really hard. Uh, I went, you know, I would drive to the office and it was kind of like a war zone. It was really hard to have two little kids at home knowing I was putting myself in danger. So it, um, basically what happened was I felt while I did my best from April to December, uh, was when I stopped working with them part-time, I felt like this is amazing work I'm doing. And I kind of stepped in. It's amazing how God puts you in places when you're needed. We went down from a team of nine people in the marketing department to two based on wow. the crisis and the lack of funding and all these things that happened with the Nicaraguan government kind of, um, some backlash against the nonprofit. So I was able to fill a spot where I could do all these people's work because I was marketing director and I know how to do social media and I know how to create a Squarespace website and I know how to do all these things that different people were doing who were no longer there. So I was able mm -hmm. to fill their shoes. I mean, not fully, but a little bit. Right. I could do a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of this. And I was able to see them through to the other side. And then I kind of felt like... I'm kind of called to do, to help somewhere else. And that's where I feel like I do this podcast. And it's strange because you're like, you know, Nicaragua really needs help. There's a, so yeah, many people, sense, right? but that's not there. necessarily my space my, where I'm supposed mm -hmm. to be. And it seems like you're kind of describing the same thing. You're like, you could do a lot of, uh, a lot of good things here, but it feels like you're called to do some work somewhere else. Yeah. And I think, it's so important that people listen to that, that still small voice, right? Um, because I could, you know, probably write in the Christian space and, you know, make a difference there, but I want to be where God actually has people that need to hear my message in the way that I, in the way that I'm going to write my message. You know, I want to impact the hearts and the, and the people who most need what I have to say. So it feels good. It, it does feel good when you are brave enough to listen. Sometimes it takes time. but um, And you, you once wrote about, and I was reading uh, your Instagram posts, which I, I think are amazing. Um, you wrote something that really resonated with me that was discipling versus disciplining your children. And that was kind of mm -hmm. like, ooh, it felt so powerful to read. How how do you balance the writing and, and the motherhood and the, and the parenting and all the things that happen? How do you juggle all of it um, and stay kind of, you know, you had, you, you describe your trauma as a child. You understand fully how important uh, a mother is to her children in these early years mm -hmm. and forever, right? Um, how do you juggle all of that? not just responsibility in terms of like logistics. I mean like the spiritual mothering of it. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's something I fail at a lot. And even just the other night I was putting my five-year-old to bed and he said, mom, why don't you ever want to play with me? And it just like wrecked me <laughs> because it's literally my worst nightmare for my, my children to feel abandoned by me because I 
felt abandoned by my own parents, um, growing up. And I think there's this tension of wanting to outdo my mom and, you know, she hurt me. She made me carry things that I should have never carried as a child emotionally. And so I want to be different than her. But when I put that much pressure on myself to be, you know, I need to be present with my kids. I need to play with them all the time and give them this idyllic childhood. Then I'm going to end up in the same space that my mom was of, you know, needing to numb myself because motherhood hurts too much. Um, if, if I see myself as a failure, And so I try to balance giving myself grace. Like there's a lot of mental health days where I just need to have my kids watch a show like for a few hours. Right. Because I'm either like going to freak out at them or have a panic attack or need my husband to come home. So, um, I try to really balance, you know, giving myself grace to take care of myself, while also like do I really need to be pitching this New York times article on a Monday morning when my kids are home with me and it's beautiful outside? Like, yes, that feels more exciting and fun and immediately gratifying to me, but motherhood is such like deep, slow work. And there's not often like an immediate reward. People don't celebrate it. So I try to really watch myself, um, and to invest in my kids' hearts, even when I don't get an immediate outcome, because those immediate outcomes are, you know, they feel good for a second, but like I said, it's like chasing the wind, but, but discipling our kids and parenting and being present is, is an investment. So that's my approach. I don't do it well. No. And I think that parenting is so much of it is really is logistics. You know, if the logistics are running smoothly, I feel like so many other things run smoothly. You had, you said you have a five-year-old. Is that, Mm -hmm. is there a new transition coming in with kindergarten soon? Yeah. And it's bittersweet, right? Because I feel like this one part of me, the the career part of me has been like, yes, like my five-year-old finally going to school, free childcare. Um, but then there's this other part of me that's like, did I waste these five years? Like, does he know, like, is he securely attached? Does he know that I love him? Like, how can I play with him more so that he doesn't remember his preschool years as me not playing with him? And so there's this bittersweet, like, sweet relief coming, but then it's like end of an era. Like, and he's getting to the age too, where he's like going to remember these parts of his childhood. Like my two-year-old, I feel like he could like slam his hand in the car door and never remember it two days later, you know, squirrel, squirrel. Yeah, exactly. And my five-year-old, like, he'll say like, remember last year when we did this? And I'm like, buddy, like, I don't even remember that. How do you remember it? So I feel like, Oh, you're going to remember the ways that I've hurt you and, you know, messed up, but maybe he'll also remember the ways that we connected and the ways that he felt loved, you know, you know, at the end of every day, I try to make it a habit to ask my kids, even though one is two also. So it's more like gibberish, right? <laughs> but the, the, yeah. the four, almost five-year-old, I ask him, um, what is, what was the best part of your day and what was the worst part of your day? And so many times the best part of his day is some like random one second positive moment that we had and that I didn't even register it, but it meant so much to him. So, so I think sometimes, a lot of the times, the good stuff, we don't notice it, but they do. You know what I mean? I hope so. Cause I feel like they're few and far between in my household sometimes, you know, Ask cause like him. you said, the logistics, like trying to get the kids into the car. So we get somewhere on time and like, why aren't your shoes on? Like I asked you if you had to go to the bathroom and now we're at the playground and you have to poop. Like yeah. <laughs> all of those little things can kind of get in the way of seeing the magic and the beauty 
of motherhood. Um, but when I just sort of keep those things low stakes and just say, who cares? Like poop your pants at the playground, like we'll be late to church, but like we're family and we love each other. And that's the most important thing. You know, I recently watched the Mr. Rogers documentary. Won't you oh. be my neighbor? Have you watched it? Yeah. That? So tearjerker. <laughs> I, I cried like so much. So the documentary is done, like it's finished, turn it off. Everyone it's, we're in darkness. And suddenly I'm like, just like shaking, like, like ugly crying. And my husband's like, yeah, what is, what is going on? And I'm like, I'm just thinking, you know, this whole, I love you. Or he says, I like you, but you know, I love you just the way you are. Am mm-hmm. I doing that enough? And, and that was just like a, it was a moment where I faced my mothering self, like full force. And I was just like, am I doing a good enough job of showing them that I like them just the way they are. And even not, not just them, my husband too. Um, that's mm-hmm. another whole nother can of worms, but it's, it's hard to, to show that when you're frustrated and exasperated and trying to get things done and trying to move the train along mm-hmm. when, you know, I asked you five times to put your shoes on. Um, it's so hard, but when you're coming from that place of, I like you just the way you are. And you also start realizing when people didn't show you that they liked you just the way you are, right? Yeah, There's, it does bring up a lot of stuff. It brings up a lot of stuff. And like, and, and for me, it was kind of eye-opening where it's like, oh, and now I see why this affected me with this and this and this. Start connecting the dots of all the moments that come up where you're like, eh, that really hurt. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that for me is something that I'm, I'm trying to focus on lately. If, just, if I focus on that and showing them that I love them just the way they are, other things have to fall into place on their own because that is what matters, right? Yeah. I think for me, when I say, you know, I'm not just trying to discipline my kids, but disciple them. The approach that we take is I want my son to know my five-year-old when he's losing his crap, having a meltdown. Like the first thing is not like you're being bad or you're a bad boy or you're not listening. It's Ollie, you are a good listener you are a good boy. Like you are full of love and kindness. And like, this isn't like you, like, you know, you're not, you're not a disobedient kid. You're a really good listener because I've seen you do that. So how can we get you back to a place where you remember who you are, that you are loved and accepted by mom and dad. And let's figure out a way to behave that, that aligns with who you really are. Right. That's, that's how we disciple our kids. I think is helping them remember who they are and that they are loved and that they are perfectly accepted. And when they're acting out of line, that's, that's not who they are. That's surprising because I know my son was made to be loving and kind and compassionate, you know, a hundred percent. I don't know if you're uh, kind of aware of Dr. Brene Brown, but I think at this point with her like, yeah, I love, Netflix I love documentary, her like work. who is not right. <laughs> I haven't watched that one yet, but I've watched, you know, all of her Ted talks and read her work and stuff. And I'm huge supporter. Yeah. I think you might find the Netflix documentary kind of like a one oh one, but at least that's how I found it. I was like, okay, so I've seen her talk in person, read all her right. books, watch all her talks. research. And, so I'm like, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember that story. Yep, that story. But she's still amazing. She's hilarious. I, I still laughed. Mm-hmm. But, um, and it's a good reminder. It's always good to like refresh, you know, on all yeah, those things. Yeah, I love her focus on just like connection. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, and her her stuff about shame and yeah, it's so important even for parents. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. There's a chapter in Daring Greatly about parenting that I refer to all the time. Every once in a while, I'll go back and read it because you know chapters are short. It'll take me ten minutes to read the chapter or less. Sure. And it's so good about how she talks about you know when a child walks into the room. Do you light up or do you criticize where their shirt is tucked out, you know, is not tucked mm-hmm. in? And I realize so many things through that. So, yeah, that, that focus on not shaming and, you know, you are not, you're, you're a good boy. You're just yeah, not listening Yeah, who made a right bad now. choice. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's so powerful. It can be, it can make such a difference. So and I'm learning so much mm-hmm. too about like in doing my own work with trauma um, and therapy, like, we literally cannot process like cognitively what people are saying until our nervous systems are regulated. So when my five-year-old is on the floor writhing and freaking out and yelling, and it's like my first job as a parent is to help him get grounded and to help his nervous system to chill out. And that's by holding him and telling him I love him and that it's okay. It's not, you're having a tantrum, go to your room and sit in your bed until you calm down. He needs my help calming down. And then when he gets to a place where he knows that he's safe, because those emotions can be so overwhelming, even for me as an adult. So imagine how a five-year-old who doesn't have the words feels. So once I can get him to a place of like, okay, we're taking deep breaths, we're being mindful, then it's like, okay, Ali, why wasn't this behavior working? Why wasn't that a good choice to hit your little brother? Um, and then he just receives it so much better than if I'm just trying to like, you know, discipline him in the moment when he's having the meltdown. So that's my best parenting tip. I learned it from my, my therapist friend, Andy. Yeah. I, I I think you can kind of like summarize that and connect before you correct. You know? Oh, I love that. It's, I should get that tattooed on my body. I just, it, it helps me. I love these little phrases because they, it helps me to remember them in these really stressful moments. Intense circumstances when mm-hmm. you're like, I just want you to be quiet right now. Yeah. <laughs> but how's that going to happen? You need to come sit in my lap. Did you know that people can actually like, there's something called neuroception where it's like you're holding a screaming baby and because you're calm, they calm down too. Like our nervous systems are, can help each other calm down. No, it makes all sense in the world because I remember I would explain it to my husband you know, he'd be like changing the diaper and kind of like not really engaging with the paper at all. Just kind of like, this is something I need to check off my list, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I would encourage him to like be sweet with the baby. He's like, but he doesn't get it. And I'm like, think of it as someone speaking to you in Chinese. You don't understand mm-hmm. in Mandarin. You don't understand a word they're saying, but you get the vibe. Are they mm-hmm. happy or are they not happy? Are they mm-hmm. pissed at you? Are they frustrated or are they having a good time? Are they trying to connect with you? And then he kind of yeah. like understood, like, I guess you're right. He doesn't understand a word I'm saying, but he can get the vibe. I'm like, of course, everybody gets your vibe. You walk into a room and people get the vibe. You come home from work, open the door, and I can tell what kind of day you've had before you open your mouth. Totally. It's the same thing. And I think as like people who have experienced trauma, we almost have that as a sixth sense of like, I walk into a place and I know right away intuitively if it's safe or not not. And so on a more like everyday level, I think our kids can sense our moods. Why do you think that when I'm like freaking out at my kid that he starts freaking out because emotions are contagious. They're, they're not just emotional, they're physical too. And so I just think that for my own healing journey and for my parenting, that, that, that sort of mindful approach is so important. 
and I'm trying to apply it to my writing too. So full circle. How does that work in your writing? Um, it works. I was, um, my friend Andy, who's a therapist, she actually just, she's writing a book. Um, and she and I were talking about her, uh, book release and I was sharing a little bit about my writing and how stressed I get. And I think a lot of times when I'm writing something that feels like I'm wondering if I'm good enough or it's stressful or I have a deadline I can feel in my body. Like I'll start to feel nauseous or like a little bit dizzy or shaky. And so just noticing mindfully, like what, what my body is trying to tell me, like, do I feel safe writing this? Is this healthy for me? Um, usually those signals come physically for me. That makes sense. And and I have a kind of a question. I want to be mindful of your time and I know you have something um, coming up. I have one last question to ask you. Is there something that you would like to kind of like a myth that you would like to debunk about being a writer? Yeah. I mean, I tell every freelance, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's not true that to be a prolific writer just takes talent. Um, and so I know that sounds really mean, but what I'm trying to say is that you are not failing if you're trying to write and you're not making waves, you are not failing as a creative or a freelancer. If you're putting your story out there and people aren't into it, writing is a game like writing for money and freelancing and writing online. It's a game. It's a puzzle. It's about knowing the right people at the right time. And so talent and prestige are not, they don't go hand in hand. You can be an incredible, amazing writer with a profound story and nobody might pay attention to it. So what am I debunking that you have to get attention for your writing to be considered a writer or a good writer? I think that's a load of crap. Do you write when nobody's watching for yourself? Yeah, I do. I, um, I'm doing this journaling exercise. Um, so I've been dealing with, um, some health problems this year, nothing major, but, um, just some chronic pain that I feel really strongly is connected to some of the trauma that I have experienced. Um, and so I'm doing this writing exercise every morning where I sort of just kind of like unload, uh, like I have a memory of this happening as a kid and I just like write all my emotions about it. Like I'm hoping that no one will read it because it's horrible. Like I'm not paying attention to what I'm saying, but I'm just trying to release the emotions. Um, and I'll spend like 10 or 15 minutes doing that. And then, um, delete it all as kind of like an act of catharsis. Um, so I, totally. I use writing as like an act of healing, um, and personal growth, but that stuff, nobody's ever reading. It's just, it's for me. No, hundred percent. But I'm sure that the growth that happens through those, you know, writing exercises is what mm-hmm. then feeds into your writing as a freelance writer, you know, to, to have the, the material, you know, from that comes from within, uh, especially yeah, because think- you do write about all the, all the trauma and all the things that you've been through. Maybe piggybacking on that. Another myth that I wanted to, to debunk would be that we don't write for love and acceptance. We write from love and acceptance. And so that's why it's so important for me to do that inner work because I want, I don't want to write to get attention and to be loved or to feel better about myself. I want to write because I have a story of redemption and hope to tell because God has already given me the love and the acceptance that I need. So 
That that's what I try to do, but it's right. That's why I really have to center myself and check myself. Like, am I writing this for love and acceptance or from a place of love and acceptance? And the work that I do, um, from that wholeness in my heart is usually the work that resonates with the most people. That is beautiful. Thank you so much, Ashley, for being on the podcast. Oh, what a pleasure. It was so fun to talk to you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ashley Abramson. To find Ashley on the interwebs, go to kinpodcast.com slash 27 for the show notes. And I'll list out, you know, her website, her blog, where to find her on Instagram, you know, where to find all of the articles she's published on the interwebs, on her contently profile, all that stuff. I'll make it easier for you to find. So kinpodcast.com slash 27. You'll find all the links to Ashley's stuff. I had a great time talking to Ashley. Thank you so much, Ashley, for your time. I'm so grateful. And I'm also just grateful for her writing. I've learned so much through it and also just learned about being brave and putting yourself out there in service of others. So what a badass. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know. You can find me at Kin the Podcast on Instagram. Also through the website, kinpodcast.com. You can find a way to contact me and... If you're a real fan of the show, I would love it if you could leave a review or a rating on iTunes, which helps other people who might enjoy the show find it. So thanks so much again for your time. Thank you, Ashley, for your time. I love being here, and I'm so grateful for your ears. I hope you have an awesome, awesome day. This is your host, Marcela, signing out.